0: Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. So good to see you today. Uh, yeah, take your Bible and turn to James chapter five. But before we jump into the book of James, I've got an announcement that I want to make, and that is that I want to let you know that starting this Wednesday at six thirty, our marriage ministry called Reengage is kicking off for this uh, coming year. And uh, you know, whether your marriage is a ten or a two. Uh, Reengage is a great place, a safe place for couples to uh, work on the relationship together. You'll hear stories from people who have been through Reengage and how God has worked in their lives. You'll hear uh, teaching on marriage, and there'll be time for you to process what you're learning in small groups. It's a, it is a great thing. Literally, hundreds and hundreds of people have been through reengage, engage and I've, we've not had any negative comments whatsoever. It's, it's really a good pro- program. Starts Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, so what you need to do is go online and sign up or stop by the Next Step table out in the Commons, and they can help you sign up. All right, you know I was flipping through channels this past week, um, and uh, I paused on the local news, and I heard that the Mega Millions jackpot was uh, something like $940 million. I actually looked it up yesterday, and nobody has claimed a prize there, so now it's at $1.1 billion. Now, not that anybody in here plays Mega Million, Powerball, uh, or anything like that, but let's just say that through some odd circumstances, you won the 1.1 million billion billion. I mean, how would you think about having all that money? Like, what would you do with all that money? How would it change your life if you had all that money? Would you quit work? Uh, well, yeah, lots of heads going, yep, I would quit work for sure. <clears throat> would you start buying bigger and better things? Do you see yourself being more generous? Now, it's interesting because from what I've heard and read over the years, it could be that for somebody to win a jackpot, some of us, if we won that jackpot, it could be more of a curse than a blessing. Now, don't get me wrong. Having a lot of money isn't necessarily a bad thing. The Bible doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all evil, and that's an important distinction to make because money is important, right? I mean, I mean, I depend on money. I have to. Money puts food on the table. Money buys clothes. Money pays my mortgage, utility bills, college tuition, car payments, all those kind of things. And then I need to stick some money aside for the future, for retirement, for a rainy day, as we say. And then I need a little bit of money to have a little bit of fun. I mean, nothing wrong with that. We all need some diversions. We all need to do something we enjoy. And we need money for all these things. So by necessity, money is something that we depend on. But if we're not careful, that attitude, that that mindset of being dependent on money can become a problem because... Well, because we never seem to have enough, right? I mean, we want more and better and bigger, and because money is so necessary for life in this world, it's easy to forget why God has given us the money he has given us to begin with. Now, James talks about all of these things in the passage of Scripture we're gonna look at this morning, so if you're not already there, take your Bible, and turn to James chapter 5, and we'll get there in just a few minutes. Now, by the way, if you're joining us for the first time, what we typically do on a Sunday morning is we teach through whole books of the Bible, and for some time now, we've been teaching our way through the book of James, an ancient letter written by James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, and James is writing to Jewish Christians who've been going through some very hard times. You see, James is probably the earliest book in the New Testament, written when the church was mostly made up of Jewish Christians, Jewish Christians who were mostly poor, and they were being persecuted by traditional Jews because they had come to believe that Jesus was the true Messiah of Israel and also the Savior of all the world. If you know your Bible, you remember how Saul, who later became the apostle Paul, was breaking into houses and house churches and arresting Jewish Christians, throwing them into jail, and, uh, and those who escaped all of that persecution ran for their lives, and they were scattered across the Roman Empire. James is writing to these people, and they're continuing to be persecuted. Now, I just want you to imagine uh, that, say, let's say 10 years from now, 15 years from now, you find yourself living in a country that rejects you because of your faith in Jesus, because you hold to biblical values of uh, marriage and family and gender. And you're not just considered an outsider. You're despised, you're hated, you're rejected. You've lost your well-paying job because you, you're, you have not uh, signed on to the, the cultural values, and, 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 and churches have been shut down by the, the elite ruling class, and, and the elite ruling class is taking advantage of you and persecuting you and making life harder and harder for you, and it just seems hopeless. That's something like what James' friends are going through. And in the midst of all of that, James is encouraging them to put their faith into action in ways that grow their faith and strengthen their faith, but also in ways that help other people. That's something, um, uh, uh, he's basically saying this, it's not enough to believe all the right things. No, when you're going through difficult times, what you believe has to work itself out invisible, tangible actions, or on this side of heaven, it's not going to do, do you or anybody else any good. Your faith's not going to do you or anybody else any good. And he's encouraging them, and he's exhorting them in a very direct, in-your-face kind of way, because they were struggling just like we struggle when we go through hard times. <clears throat> Think about it. When you and I go through trials and troubles, there are always temptations that, uh, that accompany those hardships and difficulties. Every trial comes with its own set of temptations. Every trial comes with its own set of temptations. Big picture, James says we're tempted to live by earthly wisdom rather than heavenly wisdom. And James fleshes out in detail what the temptations of earthly wisdom look like all through this letter. For example, in chapter 1, he rebukes them for praying for God's help and wisdom But doubting that God will give them what they need, he calls them double-minded. He calls them out for blaming God for the temptations they were experiencing. Uh, He accuses them of hearing the word, but not actually doing the word, not putting feet to their faith, so to speak. He scolds them for showing favoritism to wealthy visitors in their house church meetings in hopes that those people will help relieve their suffering. Twice he confronts them for not controlling their tongues. He names the sins of bitterness, jealousy, envy, fighting, quarreling, and judging one another as some of them try to manipulate people and circumstances to get what they want, all of which he calls friendship with the world. And then in chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, which Jim unpacked for us uh, before we took a break for Christmas, James calls out some of the merchants in the church for making plans for their future but pretty much leaving God out of those plans. So again, as James writes to his, his, these persecuted friends of his, most of whom are living in poverty, he calls them to put their faith into action. Now, it is essential to be reminded of this historical background in order to understand what James says next. Because what James says next is the most caustic rebuke in the letter. It is harsh, it is condemnatory, it's a stinging rebuke in the tone of an Old Testament prophet who lashes out against rich, self-indulgent people who are living purely for themselves and giving no thought, actually taking advantage of the poor and the needy. So follow along as I read James chapter five verses one through six. James says, come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. and you have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Okay, there was laughter in the first service (laughs) when I said that because like, whoa, I mean, I told you this stings. I mean, the whole tone is harsh and punitive. It's a severe prophet-like pronouncement of God's judgment coming upon these rich people, and there's no call to repentance. There's no hope for repentance. It's a simple statement of fact. God has seen your sin and judgment is coming upon you. Now, I tell you, if I walked in here on a Sunday morning and I introduced my sermon the way James introduces this passage, most of you would be very offended and certainly embarrassed if you brought anybody, and you might not even come back so the question is, who is James talking to? Who does James have in mind when he writes, come now, you rich? Who are the rich? Now, the passage is somewhat controversial, but I agree with the commentators who, um, who say that this passage was written to non-Christians. Now, I think the commentaries, I think they're right because it seems to me that the first target group James has in mind here are not our rich non-believers who were exploiting and oppressing the poor scattered Jewish Christians to whom James is writing. He said back in chapter two, verses six through seven, is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? That most definitely is referring to unbelievers, So, the poor, persecuted Christians are being oppressed by the unrighteous rich of the surrounding culture. Uh, um, I've prepared a visual. Maybe this will help you see what I'm saying a bit. Um, Let me back up a bit. Now, I paid a lot of money to have someone uh, sketch this out for me, and so I hope that uh, you, you appreciate it. But anyway, again, let's go back. James' main focus in the letter is on what's going on in the lives of his persecuted Jewish Christian friends who are scattered across the empire. And as I've said, he knows very well what their struggles and temptations are, what they're dealing with in their little house churches. And so, as I said, he's writing to encourage them and to exhort them to live out their faith in the midst of their hardships. But James is also looking at the surrounding culture in which they live. And he sees that a good many of the persecutions his friends are experiencing are coming from Will, uh, rich, wealthy landowners who are taking advantage of these poverty-stricken believers. So in this passage, the first target group for the stinging rebuke rebu- are the rich, unbelieving Jews who are making life hard for these scattered Jewish believers. Now, let's look back at the passage again and let's unpack it a bit to see exactly what it's saying. Verse five, uh, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. He's talking about on judgment day. And you've laid up treasure in the last day. So, in these first three verses, James calls out these rich people for hoarding, basically. That's what verses 2 and 3 are about. You have laid up treasure for yourself. That's hoarding. Now, back in the day, wealth was mostly measured in clothes and coins, in gold and silver coins. And he's saying, Your closets are full of moth eaten clothes that you don't even wear anymore. And rather than giving what you don't need to the poor, you keep what you have until it's moth eaten and worthless. He's saying, you have so much stuff, you can't even use it all. He says, your large bank accounts full of gold and silver that you stored up for the last days with no thought of God or the needs of others, he says, your clothes and your cash will stand as evidence of your hard, greedy hearts when you stand before God on the last day. He's talking about judgment day. Now, The truth is, and I'm guilty of this just like the rest of us, most of us have a bad case of just-in-case-itis. You know, like, well, just in case I get sick. Well, just in case the stock market crashes. Well, just in case I lose my job. and, and, And there's wisdom in saving and setting money aside for the rainy day, you know, that kind of thing. But James is railing against these people because they're planning their futures as if they are in control of their futures. Now, hear me. God is not against money. God is not against working hard and smart and earning a bunch of money. God is not against saving money. God is not against investing money and making a profit. God's not against having nice things, The Christian faith, as it is explained in Scripture, is not anti-earning. It is not anti-commerce. It is not anti-ownership. Lots of people in the Bible were wealthy individuals, Abraham, Moses, David, Job, Solomon. And in the New Testament, Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy landowner who donated a garden tomb for Jesus to be buried in. Many of the early gathering places where the first followers of Jesus met were in the homes of wealthy individuals. So God is not against money or down on people who make money or have money or save money, but God does deal with our attitude toward money. And in verses one through three, the attitude that ignites God's anger is this arrogant attitude that, that my future is secure because of what I have. He's against hoarding more than you need just in case. Verse four, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence, and you fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Talking about judgment day coming. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. So not only do they hoard things that they could have given away to help the poor, but in their greed for more, they actively exploit the poor and the needy by not paying them their daily wage at the end of the day. Now, back in the day, many poor people worked uh, the land for wealthy landowners, and at the end of the day, they were paid their daily wage. Jesus gives us a parable about workers in a vineyard who are paid at the end of the day in Matthew chapter 20. He taught his disciples to pray, give us this day our daily bread, which meant give us this day our daily wage so we can buy daily bread. That's what he's talking about. But these rich landowners were holding back their wages, which was a violation of the law. Leviticus 19 says, you shall not keep for yourself the wages of a laborer until morning. Deuteronomy 24 says, you shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns, you shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and he counts on it lest he cry out against you, and you uh, to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. But there's more. I mean, these wealthy unbelievers are not only greedy by not paying the workers at the end of each day, they're living in self-indulgent luxury at the expense of James' poor and needy friends. He's saying, you have enriched yourself at their expense and there's, there's nothing that they can do about it because they're poor. There's nothing that they can do because you're more powerful. There's nothing that they can do because you're in a position that gives you legal standing over them. You've increased your wealth at other people's expense. And in so doing, James says, they were murdering poor, righteous people. Now, probably not actually murdering people. This is probably metaphorical. Listen to how one ancient Jewish text puts it. The bread of the needy is the life of the poor. Whoever deprives them of it is a man of blood, is a a murderer. You deprive the poor man of his bread, you're depriving him of life, and God sees you as a murderer. So in the style of an Old Testament prophet, James pronounces God's coming judgment upon the unrighteous rich, on those who are making life hard for the poor and needy Jewish Christians that uh, James knows are losing heart because it doesn't seem like God is working to change their circumstances for the better. So I agree that the first target group that James has in mind are these wealthy, unscrupulous, greedy, unbelievers who are partly to blame for the trials that have come upon James' scattered, persecuted friends. But the question is, how does this pronouncement of God's judgment coming on unrighteous, rich people, how is that supposed to help God's suffering people? In other words, how does pronouncing God's judgment on unbelievers, how does that help believers? Well, uh, and we'll, we'll unpack this more next week, but the first level of application to believers is to assure, assure these Jewish Christians who are hurting he's trying to give them assurance and comfort that God sees what's going on and he hears their cries for help. And he will, in his time and his way, avenge the wrongs done to them. He will set right all the wrongs done to them. That's why he goes on to say in the next passage Verse five, be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters until the coming of the Lord. Verse eight, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, isn't it true we consider those blessed who remain steadfast? You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you've seen the purpose of the Lord how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So James is encouraging them to be patient, to be steadfast, knowing that Jesus is coming back and he's gonna set right all that's wrong. He encourages them to establish their hearts in the rock-solid truth that God is compassionate and merciful, and and they, they have to take this by faith, but they can actually experience God's compassion and mercy when they put their faith into action in ways that reflect heavenly wisdom, wisdom, which is pure and peaceable and open to reason and full of mercy and good works and sincere. Again, we'll unpack more about that next week, but I also see a second application to believers in this harsh judgment of the unrighteous rich. James is not only saying be patient, God sees you and hears you. Be steadfast, he does have compassion and mercy on you. He's also saying, don't envy the rich and famous and don't emulate their way of life. Don't envy them, don't emulate them. Now, just like he said back in chapter 2, when James called out his friends for showing favoritism towards rich visitors or members of the of their house churches, he said By showing favoritism, you dishonor the poor man. So you've got poor people dishonoring poor people in favor of rich people who are the very ones who drag them into court, the very ones who blaspheme the name of Jesus. The point is, these Jewish Christians are very much capable of envying the lifestyles of the rich and wanting to emulate their way of life. And it is true, isn't it, that Christ followers sometimes do follow the ways of the world in order to better themselves in the world. It's it's true. We can follow the ways of the world in order to better ourselves in the world. So I take it that this passage can be applied to both non-Christians and Christians. Because what God is saying here through James, it contains a warning to all rich people Christians and non-Christians alike. Now, I hear you, many of you, you're thinking, okay, Charlie, but that's not me. I'm not rich. I, I mean, I barely am, am making ends meet. And, 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 and I'm not rich. I hear you. I hear you. And it's true. Very few of us think we're rich. Uh, and we all think we need more. Many of us do live paycheck to paycheck, And we all know people who are richer than we are. I mean, when we think rich, we think of people like Bill Gates and Elon Musk and Warren Buffett and Oprah. We think of glamour and mansions and penthouses and all that kind of stuff. The truth is, though, if you own one or two cars, if you live in a heated and cooled home, if you have a computer or two and a couple of cell phones, if you have clothes in your closet you never wear, If you have some money in the bank to pay your monthly bills, then you're better off than 85% of the people living on planet Earth. Or to put it the other way, 85% of the people living on planet Earth are worse off than us. And that means from God's perspective, you're rich. So unfortunately, as much as I'd like to dodge the bullet here, the truth is most of us in this room, by international standards, and from God's perspective, we're rich. And that means, as far as God is concerned none of us are off the hook. So that brings up the question, what do rich Christ followers need to do to put their faith into action when it comes to their money and finances? See, here's the deal. I have been personally convicted as I've studied this passage because I know, I know that the hard problem of the the unbelieving rich that James denounces here I know that can also become a heart problem for you and me as believers. The hard attitude behind the actions of the unrighteous rich that James calls out, that hard attitude can infect your heart and my heart as well. We can forget why God has given us all the stuff that he's given us and we can assume that God's given us more than 85% of the rest of the world to make our lives easier. So we can save it and spend it on ourselves. And, and, and we can do what they did. Those rich unbelievers, we can hoard our stuff. And when our incomes go up, we can assume that God wants our lifestyle luxuries to increase to match our income. And we can end up not being as generous as God would have us be. Anytime we forget why God has blessed us like he has, that's the road that we can go down. Now here's the point. When I forget why God has blessed me with more than I really need, I can begin to think it's all about me. It's all for me. And I store up more stuff and I enrich my lifestyle and make sure that just in case and just in case and just in case and to make me more comfortable and to, and to purchase more pleasure. And that's what happens when a man or a woman forgets why God has blessed us with, with so much. Now, I want to ask uh, this question. Now, why is it that so many of us in this room have more than we need? I mean, why has God blessed us so richly? Again, from an international standpoint, uh, all of us are rich. Most of us have more than one TV, more than one computer, several cars, bedrooms for every child. Nothing necessarily wrong with that, but we need to realize that compared to many people in this country, and most people in the rest of the world, God considers us rich. So what does God expect from us? Jesus says to the one who's been given much, much is required. So, so, so what does God expect? What does that mean? Well, let's look at some options. Why is it that most of us have more than we really need? Maybe, option one, option one, maybe it's so we don't worry so much. Like maybe God has given us more than we need so we won't, Worry. Like God is up there and as he says, Here, Charlie, here's a little bit more, and a little bit more, and a little bit more. Now, don't worry. Like, I mean, is that it? God gives us money in our checking accounts and our savings accounts so we won't worry. Is that it? Is peace of mind the fruit of a healthy bank account? Well, the Bible says that peace is a fruit of the spirit. But maybe that's not enough. I mean, maybe God gave you more than you need so you wouldn't worry so much. No, I don't think so. In fact, the way it really works is the more you have, the more you worry, right? Because you don't want to lose what you have. The more you, wa- the more you have, the more you watch the stock market. The more you struggle with, with uh, uh, unexpected things that, that come up. I mean, you don't want to lose what you, you have. Of course you don't. Of course you don't. Nobody does. But the more you have, the more you think about it. And the more you depend on it, and the more you anchor your security in it, and the more you worry. So I I don't think God gives us more than we need, so we won't worry. Option two, maybe God has given us more than we need so we can keep enriching our lifestyles. Like every time my income goes up, my lifestyle goes up. Is that why he's blessed us? I mean, isn't it amazing how when our income goes up, suddenly we realize there are a whole bunch of things that I need now that I didn't necessarily know I needed. And it can inflate our sense of need to make sure that, it, uh, that, that, that our needs always keep up with our income. So maybe God has given you more than you need so as your income goes up, your lifestyle goes up so you can be more comfortable and you can have more things to enjoy. I don't think so. Option three, maybe God has given us more than we need so we can leave a lot of money to our children. So you can pass it on to your children, and they can pass it on to their children. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's why God has given us more than we need. I don't think so. In fact, I would argue just the opposite. You know, I've never met anyone who said, "You know, all my problems started when my parents died and didn't leave me enough money." I've, I've never heard that. But but we've all seen the other side, where somebody dumped a whole truckload of money on their kids on kids who couldn't handle it, and it ruined them. Again, there's nothing necessarily wrong with leaving stuff to your children. I plan to do that. You probably plan to do it too. But the question is, why has God blessed us with more than we need? Is it just to pass it on from one generation to the next? I don't think so. Got to be more to it than that, option four. Maybe God has given us more than we need so we can quit work early. Like maybe rather than uh, 60 or 65 or 70, it's 55, 50 or 45. Is that it? Is what God wants uh, for us to quit work early when we get enough? In other words, I can accumulate enough so I can quit work and play golf. And I still have a ministry mindset. I mean, I'm gonna put John 3.16 on those golf balls and so when they get lost in the weeds, you know, maybe somebody will find them and they'll become a Christian. And maybe I'll even start a golf ministry called Lost in the Weeds. You know, or, or maybe, maybe, you know, like uh, uh, this would be for me, not the golf, but uh, I can go live at the beach and, uh, and I can carve John 3.16 in the sand. Or maybe, here's a great idea, I have it etched on the bottom of my sandals and so that as I walk, I'm sharing the gospel with every step and maybe I'll start a ministry called Scriptures in Sand. I mean, has God given you and me more than we need simply so we can quit work early? Again, nothing necessarily wrong with that, but consider this. Some of you, God has gifted you to be able to make a lot of money. And you may have mistakenly thought that when you have, a, have enough, you'll just quit working. Now, let me tell you what that's like. That's like me saying, like let's say back when I was, 45 or 50 or 55 that's like me saying in my younger years that'd be like me saying well I think I've preached enough I'm done now what would you tell what would you say to me if when I was 50 I said I'm done you would say well wait a minute Charlie you can't do that God's gifted you to preach and teach the Bible and you help a lot of people you can't quit preaching okay but you see I've been given the gift of preaching just like some of you have been given the ability to make a lot of money and, and my gift of preaching isn't about me. And your, your, your gift for making money isn't about you. Listen, when we forget why God has given us more than we need, we can begin to think it's all about us. So we don't have to worry. So we can be more comfortable. So we can pass on a truckload of money to our kids. So we can retire early, whatever. But all those things can be very self-focused. And we can get to a place where we depend on money rather than God. God. Now, do you know why God has given us more than we really need? Why he's blessed us with more stuff than 85% of the world? Do you know why? It's simple. Let me illustrate it. You have to use your imagination on this. Imagine you're a parent. You have a son named Josh, and he has a friend named Johnny. And you pack packed Josh a lunch for a picnic and Johnny's mother packed him a lunch uh, for the picnic and you didn't bring any food because you'd already eaten. So you sit down on a bench where you can read your book and have a couple quiet moments and you're just a little ways away from where Josh and Johnny are opening their lunches And Josh opens his bag, lunch bag, and he pulls out an apple, and Johnny opens his lunch bag and pulls out an apple, and Josh reaches in and pulls out a Juicy Juice, and Johnny reaches his bag and pulls out a Juicy Juice, and then Josh, your son, reaches uh, in and he pulls out this PB&J sandwich, and Johnny, his mother packed him the same thing, peanut butter and jelly, this is all great, and they sit there and they eat their sandwiches and their apples, and they sip on their juicy, Juicy Juice. And then Josh, your son, reaches into his lunch bag and he pulls out a little baggie with four chocolate chip cookies. And Johnny reaches into his bag and his mama forgot to pack him his cookies. Now, would you, as a parent, look at Johnny and say, well, Johnny, too bad, so sad. (laughs) I mean, hey, Johnny, I noticed that when we were walking in the park here, there are some berries back there in the bushes and I hear they're really good this time of year. Why don't you go run back there and grab you some? And next time, you tell your mama that, think, mama, think, I need cookies too. Like, no, is that, you're not gonna say that, absolutely not. What are you gonna say to Josh? You're gonna say, share. Okay, about three of you would qualify <laughs> as good parents. Share, you're gonna say, share. But, he, but Josh says, but mama, these cookies are mine. And you would say, but Johnny doesn't have anything. He doesn't have cookies share with him. And if without any prompting from you, you overhear your son say, "Hey Johnny, I got four four cookies here. You take two of mine." If he shared freely, how do you feel as a parent? I mean, hopefully you're not going to say, unless you've been listening to talk radio, Hopefully, you're not going to say, oh, great, there goes the whole free enterprise system down the drain right there, because my son doesn't understand ownership. And geez, I mean, if he gives away those cookies, that kid's going to start down a road, and he'll be on welfare, and we'll be supporting him for the rest of our lives. No, 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 no. If your child gives, gives two of his four cookies away, you're going to say, I want you to know, son, I'm so proud of you for sharing and, and 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 if he doesn't share, how do you feel? Well, you feel a little disappointed, maybe a little miffed. You'd think, I got more work to do with that boy because he doesn't understand why he's been given more to share. Now, here, here, here's the deal. It's so obvious with our kids, right? Listen. <laughs> Our Heavenly Father, he is so patient with us. He looks down at all the clothes in my closet. He looks at my bank accounts and my just-in-case funds and my three TVs and two freezers and two cars. And sometimes I, I, I wonder if God is just up there pulling his hair out thinking, why do they not understand why I've given them so much? Why do they assume that it's all for me You remember the question James asked in chapter two, verse 15, he said, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed or lacking in daily food, if you say to them, go in peace and be warmed, be filled without giving them what they need, he says, what good is that? What's the question he's asking? What's he talking about? He's talking about sharing out of the the abundance that God has given you. And so you see, one way we put our faith into action when it comes to our finances one way that we show we really trust God has to do with how we look at what we have. How you view what you have will determine what you do with what you have. How you view what you have will determine what you do with what you have. And if we think that God has blessed us with more than we really need to simply save it and spend it on ourself, we have missed it. You see, the reason God has given us more than we need is to help those in need. And in James' day, the rich unbelievers had missed it. And some of James' friends who were envying the rich and showing favoritism to the rich and snubbing the poor, they were missing it as well. And and, and it's true for all of us. All of us have to answer the question, why has God given me so much? Why why has God given me more than I need? And I have to wrestle with that question and I have to adjust my lifestyle to answer that question, not just with my head, but with my checkbook. The reason God has given you more than you need is to help those in need. You've heard it. You've been blessed to be a blessing. And James, this is serious stuff here. He's, he's saying, when you die, don't you stand before God with a closet full of clothes that you don't wear? You, you don't want to stand before God like that. When you die, don't, don't stand before God with a truckload of money in the bank, some of which you could have, have used to help those in need and advance the work of the gospel in the world. Don't do that because what you consider in this life to be a source of security, when you stand before God, it might actually be a source of embarrassment. Now, I know for, uh, I, I, I know for some This is, some of us, this is a really frustrating sermon. Two reasons for the frustration. First of all, some of you might be thinking, I can't believe this. I haven't been to church in like uh, a year, and my first Sunday back to start the new year, the preacher starts the new year talking about money. I mean, that's all they ever talk about at church is money. Now, I get that. It's not true, but I get that. It's not true because at least here at Fellowship Greenville, I told you we preach through books of the Bible and we preach on money when it comes up as we go through books of the Bible. And pretty much the, that's pretty much the only time that we, we talk about money. But here's the deal. If you were alive in Jesus' day and you followed him around from village to village, from town to town, you would find that Jesus talked more about money than he did heaven or hell. You would find that Jesus talked about more about money than any other subject. If you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and you look at the recorded teaching of Jesus in those Gospels, you find that almost one-third of what he taught focused on money. That would be like me preaching on money every three weeks, one out of three weeks, so I'm not anywhere close to keeping pace with Jesus. Maybe I should change that. The root problem with this frustration, there's a root problem here, And that is, our culture says, don't ask me about my money. Don't you talk to me about my money. My money is sacred. My money is my business. It's none of your business. And I can do with my money what I want. That's what our culture says. And and to some extent, I think we're all affected by that hard attitude. Because we're like, I don't mind you telling me that I need to control my tongue, preacher. I don't mind you telling me to have more faith in trials. I don't mind you telling me that even the root cause of all my conflicts is because of what's going on in my heart, that I want what I want. And that's, that's why I quarrel and argue with my wife all the time or with my husband all the time. But listen, don't you dare talk to me about my money. But you see, that's exactly the hard attitude that Jesus and his half-brother James are chipping away at. So yeah, this can be a frustrating message because we don't like anybody telling us what we should be doing with our money. Now, let me just say this. I am really thankful that the topic of money came up today because you have been so generous to the ministries of this church, I just can't thank you enough. In fact, the elders and the pastors and the staff We are blown away by how generous you are. You have given so generously to our general fund, our benevolence fund, our missions fund, that we are consistently able to meet all of the needs that God brings to our door, and we're able to step into new opportunities that God brings our way. So I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you. And one more thing. You ready for this? Our end of the year giving for 2022 was the largest ever in the history of the church. Yeah, yeah. So really, it's a privilege and a blessing to talk about money with folks who give so generously. So thank you. But there's a second reason this can be a frustrating sermon, and that is because for some of us, who hear a sermon like this, and we don't want to just be hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word, but it's hard to know exactly what to do, right? I mean, do I just indiscriminately give to anybody and everybody that comes along and every person on a a street corner and every guy that's holding a sign at a, at a, at a, when you get off the interstate. I mean, if I, it, it, the, it, the question is, you know, if I take what James says here more seriously, what does it look like to adjust my lifestyle? And all kinds of questions start popping into our heads and it gets really fuzzy. And it's, fig, it's hard to figure out exactly what to do differently. I mean, there are no hard and fast formulas here. We're talking about hard attitudes and hard adjustments So I'm gonna close by giving you a couple things to consider in order to put your faith into action regarding your finances in the coming year. Number one, consider this question. What would it look like for you to have more hands open, heart open attitude toward what God has given you in the coming year? I'm saying don't just be a hearer of the word. Ask God what he would have you to do differently In order for you to be even more generous with your money and your stuff in this coming year, what would it look like to have a more hands open, heart open attitude toward what God has given you and talk to God about it? Ask the Spirit to guide you and to lead you in this and whatever He leads you to do, then do it. I can't tell, I can't answer that question for you. Now, number two, consider the gospel connection in all of this. In 2 Corinthians chapter eight, verses seven through nine, Paul is writing to a group of people and he's encouraging them to be generous in their giving to Jewish Christians who are being persecuted. So it's the same thing that we're talking about here. Now notice how he does it. He says, see that you excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you. And today in this message, I'm not commanding you to do anything. I'm asking you to consider things. He says, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love for others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. You see it? The gospel is our motivation to excel in the grace of giving. More than anything else, as a follower of Jesus, we should want hearts that are growing to be more and more like Jesus. And his sacrificial giving of himself is the motivation for our sacrificial giving as well. And then finally, consider this action step (laughs) clean out your closets. Clean out your closets and donate the clothes you don't wear and will never wear again to Miracle Hill. You know what we ought to do? We ought to get the Miracle Hill truck out here. Yeah, let's do that. All right, Josh, can we work on that? Yeah, let's do that. We'll get the Miracle Hill truck out here. I remember when we did this, we did this years and years ago, and we, st- we actually stacked it out in the, in, the, in, the, in the commons area, and it went all the way to the ceiling, the, the pile of clothes so, But we'll, But then Miracle Hill had to haul it off and put it in trucks, so we'll just do the, the truck thing. But, you know, it, uh, I can't think of a clearer application of the passage than that. Clean out your closets. Somebody reminded me, so I've heard you say this before, but you've said that every time you buy a new shirt, you get rid of like two or three shirts. And that's true. But I've still got a closet full of clothes I'm never going to wear again. And I need to I need to do this myself. And it might be a cool thing to get your kids involved in in this if you have kids still living at home. Uh, Maybe yes. How we get how will we get that out to people? Like text, email. We'll figure it out. We'll shoot for next Sunday. Oh, I'm, I'm out of. I'm now. We just went off camera. What What did you What did you say? Yeah. Okay. Let's not get carried away. <laughs> if that's what God tells you to do, then do it. Uh, but I'm just saying, let's let's clean out our closets right right now. But oh, it's her fault. You said that too. All right. Well, well, we'll work on that one too, okay? All right. Just remember, the reason God has given us more than we need is to help those in need. So what would it look like for you to have a more hands-open, heart-open attitude towards the stuff that God's given you in this coming year? <laughs> Father God, we, uh, we thank you for your word how clear and how practical and how sometimes disturbing it is, and that's a good thing because we get we get sometimes we get too comfortable, and we need to be disturbed and poked. And I thank you that this passage has uh, done just that for most of us. And we want to ask that question, God: What would it look like for me to have a more hands open, heart open? attitude towards all the things that you have blessed us with. Holy Spirit, would you lead us into specific action steps as to what that means so that that when we come to the end of this next year, you will have grown us to excel in the grace of generous giving. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.